You're listening to Pine Curtain Confidential. The first episode of Pine Curtain Confidential combines East Texas family folklore with the history of Homer, Texas, a once thriving town that became a ghost town after a series of interpersonal and economic impacts over the course of about 20 years, spanning the late 1880s until 1900. While Homer still has a modest population and a tight-knit, thriving, and upbeat community, it has never quite risen to the levels of prosperity that it had reached in its inception. This story will shed light on some of Homer's mysteries and histories with some ideas on how the two converge. The year is 1960, and the night is soup-thick and inky black. A child fights sleep in his bedroom, cocooned in his Lone Ranger bedspread, and watched over by posters of John Wayne and Mickey Mantle. The farm-to-market road alongside his house is usually busy with the noise of drivers traveling from their country houses to town and back. But tonight, aside from the occasional crackle of a glowing bug zapper, there's silence. Not even a stray dog barking at raccoons or night vermin snuffling and digging in the fragrant gardenias and rose bushes that surround his clapboard house. He is bored and he is hot. He kicks off the covers and huffs, wishing it was morning and time for his cartoons and cereal, his prizes for making it through the long, dull night. He trains his imagination toward the shadows on his wall, shaping his small fingers into a gun. Pow! Pow! He whisper yells. Down, you dirty dog! The house creaks in response, settling into itself like a living thing. But the boy isn't scared. Mom says the house is just tired, like anyone would be if they had to stand up and shelter this family, all of them clanging in the kitchen and running across the hardwoods day in and day out. He's just briefly out of his imagination, and a moment he'll remember for the rest of his life, when one of the shadows slides across the room and stops at the edge of the bed. It becomes a tall, lanky man wearing a trench coat and a fedora, who locks eyes with him, and then almost leisurely slides out the window. The boy sneaks out of bed to watch, pressing his face to the glass as the man paces the length of the yard a few times and then disappears into the late summer night. The man reappears over the boy's entire life. As a grown-up in his 70s, the boy, now a man himself, will still talk about this night visitor, an apparition that was alarming and increasingly scary as it spent the intervening generations lurking in doorways, pacing the edge of the yard, and turning corners, moving quickly just beyond view. His sister tells her own story. He turned over my boyfriend's photos, face down, she said. He banged on the wall from that little closed-off room between the kitchen and my bedroom. He said he lives in the wig shop. He told me his name, but I'll never share it. For a brief time, the house was rented out to tenants, and when I say brief, I mean really brief. The tenant couple woke up one too many times covered with red bite marks. Rather than stay and solve the mystery themselves, they were packed and gone within a week. Most recently, an elderly veteran there would feel tormented by oily shadows moving along the fireplace hearth and feeling his bed shake in the night. While he was almost 90 years old, and he did have a metal plate in his head in exchange for his years of military service, he also knew what he was experiencing, 
and that what he was experiencing wasn't right. The matriarch of the house? Well, she takes it in stride. What else can she do? What do you think it is? I asked her on a recent visit. She shook her head and leaned forward in her recliner, gestured toward another, darker room where the fireplace was. This was original to the house, she said. We built the walls, roof, and rooms, pretty much everything new when we came here. But the foundation in the chimney, that's been here a while, way before us. Perhaps the chimney is a conduit for spirits. Maybe it's that. The matriarch and her first husband both had siblings that died in their teens one from appendicitis and one from complications after a fall from a horse. Maybe it's one of them? Maybe. Or maybe in this tidy, pretty house with its well-maintained yard with roses and climbing jasmine vines that sits between a church and an auto body shop and a sleepy community with a traumatic history, something else is going on. After all, this isn't the only place in Homer where strange things happen. From orbs and voices in the local church to groups of apparitions crossing the road, there's a lot of activity that no one can really explain. But when you learn that it's a ghost town, everything starts to make sense. It's been said that the past isn't even past, and that's certainly the case in Homer. To know Homer's history is to look at the houses ensconced on ancestral land, the families who have lived there for centuries, and the rise, fall, and missed opportunities of the community itself. Situated roughly seven miles from Lefkin and carved out of seemingly impenetrable pine groves, Homer has maintained a population of around 360 for the past decade or so, and has no economy to speak of beyond a collection of churches, artisans who can do everything from paint your car to craft intricate stained glass panels, and smaller, lower community investment businesses like porta potty lots and boat storage. But the 1800s told a very different story. The second seat of Angelina County, Homer had a busy Main Street square anchored by a courthouse. Within this multi-block area, there were stores, restaurants, and at least three bars. The Hudeberg Hotel sat near the square's northwest corner. A schoolhouse with plenty of land for children to learn and play was across from it. Law offices and other businesses lined the streets, and artisans and merchants could peddle their wares to a diverse population that included Germans, Austrians, Swiss, and Africans. The city was poised for great success until 1881, when the Houston East and West Railway bypassed Homer and went through Lufkin instead. For generations, there was a legend that implied Homer was shunned due to a saloon brawl and arrest involving railroad executives. But historical records indicate that Homer was never seriously in the running to receive this necessary and sustaining boost to its economy due to its geographical location. Against the larger conflict of the railroad's recharted path and after its decision, smaller dramas were playing out among Homer's citizens. Fierce interpersonal feuds were a common occurrence, flaring up every few years. One of the last of them, in spring 1900, saw two of Homer's most prominent families turned against each other in a battle that would leave two dead, a town traumatized, and a family name faded from the community forever. Prior to federal prohibition laws, legal drinking in Texas came and went in different degrees within the temperance movement, which began in the 1840s. In 1886, there was even a prohibition party offering up viable political candidates. At the turn of the century, in extremely rural Angelina County, this movement was popular for moral and religious reasons, 
and Angelina was a dry county, a distinction that was controversial among a boisterous and independent population known for being wholly uninterested in playing nice with others. Robert Scroggins was a Homer shopkeeper with a young family when he died at the hands of B.W. Ben Borden, a local and by all accounts mild-mannered schoolteacher. A witness stated, I am not surprised that Scroggins is dead, but I am surprised it was Borden that did it. The men were considered to be friends, and on the record their argument was centered around the notion of temperance, specifically a blind tiger or illegal saloon that Borden not only accused Scroggins of running, but also implied that he would report everyone involved, including patrons, to federal detectives and a federal grand jury. Although the fact that Scroggins called Borden an SOB and a sister effer in the argument probably didn't help to de-escalate the situation. Borden had stopped into the store looking for spurs. He had just a few minutes earlier been enjoying some raisins purchased from Scroggins' father-in-law's store next door. While his time in the square seemed to have started with very mundane activities, Borden concluded it by shooting Scroggins with a pistol in front of his two young sons, who began to scream. The commotion roused Robert's wife, Sarah, who had recently given birth, and she ran from their house next door to find Borden standing over her husband's wounded body. She rushed back to their house to get some water and heard more shots as she left the room. Scroggins' last word on record were, Don't shoot me anymore. You have killed me. Borden pleaded not guilty by reason of self-defense. Scroggins was unarmed. He had sent his gun to be serviced by a friend. While there was an unopened knife next to his body, there was no indication that it had been used. Borden testified that Scroggins sprang toward him with it despite having no cuts. This added insult to the grievous injuries, a wound to his cheek, one to his hand, and three to his liver, to Robert Scroggins and his family. So what does one do with insults and injuries? In those days, and even now, and as long as there is human nature, insults and injuries are fuel for revenge. The ghost came with the house, along with the foundation, chimney, and fireplace hearth. When my family moved there in the late 50s, the home structure was built on a foundation that had been in place for a hundred years or more. Maybe that was the problem. Consider the idea that spirits can travel between worlds through wells or other portals, like metaphysical elevators. Consider the idea of trauma down to the very bricks of a place, seeped into the dirt, seeding the grass. In that instance, it's everywhere and it grows. And in some ways, it is everywhere. The man who haunts the house is the only one to show himself, but the matriarch hears chittering voices, and during the area's torrential rains that mark the changing seasons, blood-colored mud bubbles up in the yard. About two blocks away, the Methodist church reports its own phenomena. Orbs in the choir loft, that sort of thing. Parishioners swear that they have seen a long-buried friend or two walking toward the door and fading to disappear. More mischievous entities hold unlocked doors closed and snicker in the empty sanctuary, and in moves that are harder to ignore, fling garbage can lids across the kitchen with enough force that they rattle and roll. One thing you must understand about Homer is that most of these ghosts are known. 
Many original 1800 settlers have family members who are still here on land that hasn't changed hands for centuries. In other words, to us, this isn't ghosts, it's Grandpa. Which is why this particular ghost was so disturbing. No one really knows who he is, where he came from, or exactly what he wants other than to make trouble. He was scared, the matriarch said, tilting her head toward her now-grown son. He came into our room almost every night, but we didn't know what to do. We were experiencing the same things he was. Well, sister saw him too, he said. Remember? She would come home from school and all of Jerry's photos would be turned face down. Maybe it didn't like Jerry, said the matriarch. Maybe we should have paid attention to that, they both laughed. Remember when she got out that Ouija board? No laughter then, just uncomfortable silence. The matriarch shifted in her seat. Her son cleared his throat. I changed the subject. What did this used to be? I asked, gesturing around the house and surrounding property. You mentioned that a foundation was here when you moved. What was its purpose? It was always a house, the matriarch said. But all this other stuff on land around it, that was old Homer. Homes and businesses. The old Methodist Church and Masonic Lodge was across the street. That away was the jail, more than a few people hung over the years, probably from those trees that we're looking at. Interesting, I said. Lots of options for ghostly energy. And down the road, where the new Methodist Church is, well, that was the old courthouse, and in front of that was all kinds of businesses. Restaurants, saloons, and a few stores. Stores, I asked. What stores? Oh, I don't know, she sighed with a wave of her hand. It was a long, long time ago. Why don't you go look in a library or somewhere? See what you can find. There are a few places in Angelina County to research the history of the area. The first one I tried was the History Center, which is pretty self-explanatory. Located in Dyball, Texas, off of Highway 59 toward Houston, this small, craftsman-style building was designed especially to highlight the natural beauty of wood, one of Deep East Texas' first and finest cash crops. Its grounds are landscaped with flora and fauna native to East Texas, including lawbally pine, white oak, bald cypress, sycamore, red maple, eastern redbud, blue stem, including the little, big, and split-beard varietals, wax myrtle, cross vine, Carolina jasmine, Virginia sweet spire, and Dam B. Wisteria, named for its discovery near the dam on a southeast Texas lake. The center's collection of historical documents, including photographs, publications, oral histories, and other archival ephemera, capture big events and day-to-day minutiae from Lufkin, Dybal, and surrounding areas, including Homer. Specifically, the Ruth Grant Homer Research Collection would eventually get me where I wanted to go. On a pleasant fall afternoon, I visited, opened some boxes, and had a look. There were a lot of things to be angry about in late 1800s Homer. It was in this era that it began to decline from a thriving town on its way up to a ghost town battling a series of unfortunate events. Beginning with the Gilly Feud, a Civil War-era battle that killed the sheriff, and continuing through a major economic disappointment when the Houston East and West Railroad bypassed Homer for Lufkin and took Homer's county seat designation with it, Incidents small and large must have made for a considerable amount of chaos. 
I pawed through old papers and photographs, index cards with Mrs. Grant's hand notations. I briefly looked at each document until something caught my eye. Scroggins. Cool, I thought. This is a name that I knew well. My first best friend was a Scroggins, my neighbor whose house was my house and vice versa. I stopped to read about attack and saddle supply in a shooting in 1900. I double-checked the victim's name. I looked at the location of the crime and a light bulb flashed. I was on to something. Homer was named Homer in the 1860s and has stayed so aside from a brief interlude when its name was changed to Angelina in honor of the county and the Hassanai woman who it's named for. As the population has marginally expanded and contracted, core families have been there on or near the plots of land where their ancestors settled. Some are still there, some aren't. But the result is that growing up, you see the same people from the time you're old enough to make friends until they die or you die, or in some cases, one kills the other. This was the case when B.W. Ben Borden murdered Robert Scroggins in spring 1900. And it was the case a few months later when Fred Scroggins, Robert's brother, encountered Joe Borden, Ben's brother, playing cards on the porch of Homer's Hudeberg Hotel. Borden approached Scroggins while holding a paper, which Scroggins says was hiding a pistol. Believing that Borden would fire on him first, Scroggins jumped up and shot at Borden, who ran through an adjacent neighborhood before falling on the ground in front of a gathering crowd of friends, family, and colleagues. According to recorded eyewitness accounts, he bled out and died without anyone coming to his aid. The following spring, when the rest of Angelina County was awash in green, the redbud trees, the loblolly pine, the blue stem varieties, the grass did not grow where Joe Borden fell. Time offered few signs of renewal from Homer's old insults and injuries. Just a spot of brown for neighborhood children to show off to their friends and tell the story of how it got there. But there was to be one more meeting for the Scroggins of Borden families. In fall 1900, Ben Borden and Fred Scroggins met as they embarked on the mundane business of preparing for Scroggins' trial for the murder of Ben's brother. Borden had taken his wagon to Lufkin to look for witnesses to the prosecution. Scroggins was there for a meeting with his lawyers. According to court documents, the wagons met in the road and each man began to fire. Borden was wounded in his shoulder and suffered broken fingers with a shot from Scroggins' Winchester. Scroggins was unscathed by Borden's shotgun. Both parties were indicted with intent to murder. The case became so polarizing that the trial location was changed from Angelina County to neighboring Cherokee County. Fred was found guilty and was incarcerated in Rusk, where he was later released after being declared innocent by reason of temporary insanity. When he came home after a brief stay at Rusk Penitentiary, it is said that he was met at the train depot in downtown Lufkin and carried down Main Street to the beat of Lufkin's famous hoo-hoo band. It's unclear when the Borden family left Homer, but Scroggins' descendants note that for a while people didn't even want to be found using Borden brand milk. The loose name association alone was too damning. There are names on gravestones, faint, mossy, and hard to read, but no other signs that the family ever lived there. Joe Borden's wife was pregnant at the time of his death and later gave birth to his namesake. 
The son was born with special needs and died young with no descendants of his own. So the Joe Borden line ended there. Homer was and is a small place with big ambitions and big personalities. Generally speaking, its residents are still people who love big and fight big, sometime within the same block on the same day, among the same people. In many cases, they're the same families who were fighting 100 plus years ago. With all of that energy circulating in such a condensed, charged atmosphere, it isn't hard to consider, especially among the more spiritually inclined of us, that residual energy remains. I love spending time with my grandmother, but I don't always love being in her house. When she's not there, other people see things. I haven't personally, nor do I want to. It's my personal belief that when you open your mind to anything like that, you open it to everything, the good and the bad. The closest I have come is when my cousin and I made a Ouija board in the little room that used to be my aunt's bedroom. We had cut out a planchette and made a board from ballpoint pen and notebook paper. My aunt called us mid-setup and made us throw it away right then and there. At the time, I thought she was overreacting. We were having fun, and I'm sure it was something we'd seen on TV. But knowing what I know now, I understand. When my aunt, as a young person, consulted Parker Brothers, a.k.a. the Ouija board, she found the energy to be forthcoming, almost eager to connect, to spread the chaotic, grim, mocking energy, perhaps to transfer it somewhere new. Energy like that of two friends escalating in a flashpoint duel. Energy that feels like opportunities sliding away from you, your courthouse burning, your buildings declining into air, prosperity rushing away. Energy like that of two families entwined in chaos and death, remembered in history as cautionary tales, heroes, or villains, depending on which family you happen to like better. Energy of things going from bad to worse, of dying in front of people you thought cared about you, and the last thing you understood was that no one was going to help you or even give you comfort. Where are you, my aunt had asked the board into the ether. W-I-G shop, it replied, which my aunt took to mean my grandmother's hair salon. Who are you, she asked. She did get an answer, but she refuses to share it. Why, we have asked. Because, she says, if you have a name, you can call it up. And believe me, you don't want it. That wraps up the first story in Pine Curtain Confidential. I'm Stephanie Hatak, an artist, writer, and creator of this podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time in the Pines.